Welcome to In Orbit, the podcast exploring how technology from space is empowering a better world, brought to you by the Satellite Applications Catapult. I'm your host, Lucy Edge, Chief Operating Officer at the Catapult. And in this series, we'll be in conversation with some of the most inspiring minds in the country, exploring the ways that the UK is using space to make huge differences to our everyday lives, as well as gaining a better understanding of its role in shaping and also sustaining our planet for the future. This is the final episode in our three-week mini-series, sharing live panel sessions from our Westcott Space Cluster Expo. The Westcott Space Cluster is a growing nucleus of space-related companies developing new technologies in rocket propulsion, 5G communications and in-orbit manufacturing, to name a few. The site offers unique testing facilities in a secure and controlled environment where sector experts can help businesses to identify and benefit from the opportunities in these emerging fields. In this third and final episode, we're sharing the panel about integrating drone aircraft into national airspace hosted by Liam Brager, Business Manager of the Satellite Applications Catapult. The panel members discuss the current challenges in operating autonomous systems, the requirements for business growth, and what needs to be considered as we move away from segregated airspace. Thank you very much. Um, so, uh, the, the government recently announced at Farnborough Air Show uh, their initiative called Advancing uh, Airborne Autonomy um, and Project Skyway. So, it's never been more important to discuss uh, the integration of autonomous aircraft into the national airspace. Uh, today, we are joined by a panel of people that represents some of the, the most important parts of that industry. And if you could introduce yourselves, that would be great. My name's Clem Robertson. Uh, I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Radar Technologies, and we're developing sensor solutions that enable drones to operate in challenging environments, including urban airways, or enabling drones to land in, in, in um, um, bad environments. Good afternoon. My name's Richard Ellis. I'm the Chief Business Officer at Altitude Angel. Uh, we're the company putting the Skyway together um, and trying to bring uh, BV loss operation, so beyond visual line of sight operations at scale to become commercially viable f- across the UK. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Michael Merritt uh, from Skyports. I'm from a strategy and operations team, and uh, we look to do do beyond visual line of sight drone services, both in surveillance, surveying, and uh, delivery for companies like the NHS, Royal Mail, FedEx Express, that sort of thing. And we'll be an operator in uh, Project Skyways. Uh, I'm Kieran Arnold. I'm Chief Architect for Future Networks and Systems for the Satellite Applications Catapult. Uh, most of my role is to do with integrating comms, uh, navigation, and sensor technologies within autonomous vehicles or autonomous aviation assets. Hi everyone, um, my name is AJ Mod. I'm the head of business for a company called Android Technologies. Um, I look after all of the work here in the UK and Europe. Um, and Android have got a, uh, one clear goal, which is to cross-pollinate um, ideas from regulatory technical um, activities uh, from a lot of the work we do in the US, here in the UK and out in Asia. Perfect, thank you guys. Um, moving into questions, I think there's, there's one key question that informs all, all of the other questions that we'd ask here, and that is when we're looking at bringing BV loss flight and drones into the national airspace, 
are we looking to integrate them into the national airspace or segregate them, which is the, the method that seems to be used at the moment uh, with different BV loss corridors? I'd just be keen to hear your opinion on that. I think the, the solution to operate drones, um, whether they are small drones or large drones, um, and I know a lot of people talk about air taxis, um, is to integrate them within the airspace we have. Um, and there's a number of reasons for it, but the primary reason that, you know, we only have so much airspace, you don't want to break it down into bits of uh, airspace that some uh, types of aircraft can operate and others can't. So we have to get away from this idea about uh, temporary danger areas. Uh, but the way to do that is to move towards a new paradigm for traffic management. You know, we talk about digital technologies, we talk about automation, so we have to start looking at traffic management technologies that take the workload away from uh, air traffic controllers um, and start using the capabilities that we have today uh, in IT to enable um, the operators of these drones to use the digital systems in front of them to provide, to get them actionable data that they need to respond to, right? They don't need to be monitoring drones all the time. These things are capable of flying in an autonomous uh, fashion, and so we should do that. Um, but from our perspective, uh, quite an important aspect of this is around standards um, and data, right? Um, once we prepare standards um, that will allow um, this integration to happen uh, for UTM technologies to be adopted, not just in the UK, we want to harmonize uh, with Europe as much as we can. Uh, that might sound controversial, but I'll say it. Um, it, it allows businesses and organizations to have uh, products that are exportable outside the outside UK. So it's, it's all about standards. It's making sure that you know, we, we develop something that, that is cross-cutting. Richard, would you like to add to that at all? Yeah, so to, uh, to add to that, the ability to unsegregate airspace is absolutely critical uh, to be able to make this uh, scale for operators such as Skyports. Currently, the constructs enabled in the UK require a temporary danger area. Now, what's dangerous about something flying? I'm a GA pilot. I can fly under certain safety considerations. So can drones under certain safety considerations. Temporary danger areas do not scale to allow these operations to become commercially viable and repeatable. They are, by their very nature, temporary. You could downscale them to uh, transponder mandatory zones, same issue. Not everything is conspicuous. Not everything is in controlled airspace. Controlled airspace, just to give some context, equates to about 4% of the country's uh, low-level airspace. So 96% of, of the UK, technically, without a TDA, does not allow repeatable commercial beyond visual line-of-sight flights to happen. So unsegregation of that airspace is critical. Now, we talk about UTM not being just a dot on a map where you can see a drone on a map. You know, that's been done for years. It's about unified traffic management. It's about bringing together the different airspace users separately and, and safely together, such that those that can uh, use a digital service to keep them separate from other uh, airspace users without reliance on voice can do that at scale, but while allowing the, uh, the controlled airspace uh, uh, traditional ATM elements, the ability to see exceptions. So I think that's the real key here, is to unsegregate, to take away some of these artificial constraints, focus on the safety cases, and put the 
range of cap digital capabilities in place to enable these things to scale. Yeah, thank you, Richard. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, just for a bit of context, uh, Skyports operates um, every day beyond visual line of sight flights in Singapore. And we do this every day in controlled airspace. And that's because most of Singapore has controlled airspace. But in the UK, say there's very little controlled airspace, and we are very congested. And the, the trying to do permanent commercial operations today, there is no regulatory framework that allows you to do that. And if you do want to set up a TDA, so essentially an area where no other operators are allowed, so no planes or no helicopters, that process takes 31 weeks at the very minimum and could be up to two years. So if you would like to run an operation for you know, any customer, you have to then tell them that this is how long it takes. And it quickly becomes... Uh, difficult, expensive, and not viable um, in, in the UK today. And that's why we need some form of um, unsegregation. Probably just to add to that is, um, you know, for people who are familiar with aviation, it's, it's still a legacy technology. We use voice predominantly in, in the interaction between aviation uh, and the ground. And, and in a legacy, we, we, you know, world still carrying on in that way. We're not going to advance at the right. We need to advance when we move to autonomy. You've all got 5G phones or 4G phones here. You're able to use data. You're able to geolocate yourself. You're able to understand who's around you. Um, the technology exists today to be able to do that deconfliction. Um, I like to use the word coexistence rather than integration. Um, and, and that's what we need to do. You know, there are a plethora of technologies out there, whether they're radar-based, whether they're using AI to understand that asset and what its trajectory is and how it's moving and how that's changing as well. So really, in terms of where the world has been moving to, certainly in the last 10 years, is uh, technology is not the issue. It's actually the policy and regulation that we need to change. So everybody's been talking about autonomous vehicles, autonomous cars, your Tesla, being able to drive down the road. But autonomy, for it to truly happen, it has to have method resilience. So manned aviation has many ways of being able to locate and identify what an asset is. To allow autonomy to happen and to go away from voice being the main way of us being able to understand where something is, we need to... the, the the drone space, whether segregated or unsegregated, is going to have to have method resilience in how the systems work to ensure it can continue to work when one or more systems may fail. For example, whether it's camera-based or radar-based or LIDAR-based or GPS-based, there's always going to be scenarios where one of those or more than one of those systems may fail and the system needs to continue to operate. Perfect. Thank you, Cam. Um, I think uh, uh, an interesting question is with autonomous ground vehicles like cars and things like that, there's uh, obviously a lot of resistance to those uh, you know, becoming a reality. Um, do you think there's any lessons that we can learn in this space from the automotive industry about how to successfully uh, liaise with the public and, and the potential users of these craft to speed up the adoption of uh, autonomous drone craft? I'll start. I'm not sure the, autonomous, the automotive industry may well be a lead. I, I actually think the adoption of drones for being used for logistics activities like commercial airspace may actually come quicker than the adoption of autonomous vehicles. And the main reason is an autonomous vehicle will carry a person, so it has those safety constraints, whereas Amazon is already dropping parcels in back gardens in California. Um, 
which doesn't involve a person, but it will have an interaction with a person, an overlap in operational design domain. But as long as there's ways of ensuring that the drone doesn't come in contact with the person or the general public, the adoption will happen faster. So we, you may find, actually, the autonomy of drones may actually become a feed back into the automotive space. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd support that completely, actually. I think uh, the, the drone side or, or uncrewed vehicles are happening much, much faster than the automotive side. And part of the reason for that is... I think there's been a lot of work being going on to pick the use cases that give more societal benefit in the early stages, such as, you know, whether it be defibrillators, whether it be NHS deliveries, whether it be uh, chemo deliveries we've heard of this week going over to the Isle of Wight. Um, you know, and I look at some of the use cases on around the world, a lot of them are there for societal benefit. Now, if you suddenly have an environment where, say, you have 100 drone flights happening in an afternoon, which we did a couple of weeks ago, people rapidly became desensitized to the drones. All of a sudden it was, oh, there's another flight going on. And so I think we've got to get more flight activity out there, get the confidence in a safe manner with the right safety cases behind it, but scale up the operations. Do more in a safe environment, in a safe location. And they're not noisy. You know, you get a drone up to 100 feet or more, you don't hear them that much we can put noise services in place if we need to. So there's a bunch of other things and aspects that can be established to help with societal uh, uh, acceptance. But fundamentally, the use case where suddenly it's caught a criminal, you know, it's saved a life, it's delivered uh, medical capabilities, not so much worried about the, you know, coffee deliveries for a mile away, you know, that will happen, they are happening, but really the ones that make a difference are those things that maybe get traffic off the road once we start to get to the heavier weight stuff. Uh, I think uh, wind races are doing the about 100 kilos at a pop delivery up to the Shetland and Orkney Islands, which is a significant value over having to ship them manually or, or in big jets. So there's a lot of different aspects there, but I think just doing more and more of this and showing it will, uh, will start to open up uh, acceptance. I think just to ex extend that a little bit, the main difference between what we're doing with drones and what they're doing in the automotive sector is naturally in automotive, you, you don't design your own roads. You go on the roads that are already there. And even those little bots you see, I think maybe they're in Milton Keynes from Starship Technologies, um, they deliver to people's homes. And we're not trying to do that. Um, you know, when, when uh, I flew as, as part of our flight operations team on a project in, in Western Scotland, and we flew five trunk routes uh, to five different hospitals, connecting them, you know, from uh, little outposts to the main lab. You know, we reduced their kind of um, processing time down from two days to around two hours. And you can make a real difference, but you can tell people exactly where you're going to be at exactly that time. It's not like it's a changing environment where we're constantly adapting. It's the same route at the same times every day. And I think that's where the key difference is that it, done in the right way, some of these really high value use cases that, that Richard talks about, they, they can be completely repeatable. They, you can say exactly when they'll occur and, and then deconflict, uh, you know, in, in that way. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things is when you start to understand how systems work when there's a human in the loop. 
Um, so if you look at the automotive uh, industry, if, if you were to design automotive from scratch again, would you really want the human in the loop if you want a safety system? Possibly not. And with drones, we've got the opportunity, and certainly are, that the systems in itself are inherently predictable. They will perform to a particular characteristic and you haven't got the fear factor of that human doing something that is out of context or beyond what should be the bounds and, and control of the system as well. So maybe that is a, a lesson to be learned from, from the automotive system. Sadly, for all of you, you shouldn't be behind the wheel of a car. You should let the car drive itself. Thanks, Kieran. I believe today has been about looking at lots and lots of test facilities and infrastructure pieces, um, and satellite application has been an excellent host. But if you go back to the question, it's about infrastructure. Um, in a previous role, I was involved with uh, at the Connected Places Catapult with some of the work on autonomous cars, where Nissan drove a car from Cranfield University to their site in Sunderland. Um, it was level four, as they call it, um, in, in terms of the, the, the type of automation. But it, was only, it, it could only be done because there was existing infrastructure, as Michael mentioned. You know, we have roads, we have uh, curbs, we have lanes, we have markings. All of that was the basis on, on top of which um, different capabilities have been developed, whether it's radar on cars or cameras and image recognition and all sorts of things that allow a car uh, or the uh, the computer inside the car to be able to determine when it's close to something, when it's uh, detecting an, uh, a collision and it can manage a conflict. Now, a lot of those learnings do translate to drones, right? Uh, the CAA today would argue that if you want to fly BV loss uh, beyond visual line of sight um, in a unfettered manner, you need to detect and avoid. Right? And yet, on small drones, it's a problem. You know, we don't have the swap, we don't have the size, weight, power for these sort of capabilities. Um, one of the other areas that uh, um, the um, ground transport benefited from was standards. They, in, they introduced standards on radar, they introduced standards on um, uh, connectivity, what they call vehicle to vehicles, or V to X, V to V. Uh, they introduced Wi-Fi wi connectivity, right? In the drone space today, um, we have, some people would say it's an opportunity, others would say it's actually quite a narrow bounded problem. There isn't a, a one single aeronautical frequency on which drones can be made to operate, i.e. a remote pilot can connect to a drone. We use Wi-Fi frequencies which work, uh, visual line of sight, and maybe a little bit further beyond that. Um, SATCOM is a great product that can be used on drones and it would provide not just the C in the CNS, but it also provides navigation. And with space-based uh, ADSB, you can get surveillance as well. But again, it needs to be uh, at a cost that the drone, um, the businesses can afford. So it needs to come down. Um, and so there's these layers of infrastructure and technologies that um, uh, I would say it's an opportunity. They're lacking. They need to be embedded. Uh, and we need standards. It's all about that. You know. Um, the, it's, it's very easy for this sector to become fragmented as a result uh, of individual standards. And it did happen in, in um, self-driving cars to a certain extent. There are a couple of standards around V2V capabilities, and they haven't gone anywhere further. So 
kind of connecting all of those people, all of those features would really make sense. And it's about industry and uh, all of us kind of working together to develop those um, consensus uh, technologies that will make it happen. Um, that's, that's the way to go. Okay, um, I, I think personally one of the major issues that the drone industry is going to see is that of insurance. Um, with there being sort of no historical data for them to pull on um, to inform their, their strategy and their management of risk, how, how do you see that moving forward uh, for insuring drones, for drone operations? Do you perhaps see it on a case-by-case -case basis or would you be able to, to operate in a similar way to a, you know, a, 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 a lorry? I don't think anyone on the panel is actually from uh, or has experience in insurance, uh, but given that we have to insure our vehicles to fly them, it makes sense that I say something, even though I would caveat I'm not an insurance expert. Um, so at the moment today, drone insurance is done uh, essentially obviously we have like you have company insurance and then you have insurance for the hull and then you have some public liability insurance that comes with that um, now I, I think really where this is going is the same way as traditional aviation you know if I want to fly a fully experimental aircraft my insurance is going to be very high um, but as soon as we have which we do which we don't have today um, design verified and and then fully certified drones uh, it will become very simple uh, to insure them. And I don't think we're too far away from that. I think it's a, a, you know, a, a number of years, one, two, three years, not 10 years away from design and fully certified drones. And that will make the, the situation much easier for, for insurance companies. But at the moment, there are two main frames. You can either purchase a kind of a per day, per week, per flight, per location basis, uh, this kind of business model, or you can just purchase for operations in an entire country. Um, but I do think that as we increase the level of, of technology and then the robustness of that technology, um, the, the insurance costs will you know, come in line and, and also be very uniform uh, across a number of platforms. There's a misnomer there that there's a limited amount of data available. There is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of hours of flight data available from companies who have been doing this already. I mean, I, I wouldn't care to put a number on how many hours of Skyports have done. It's quite significant. We manage the entire infrastructure for the Netherlands, for Norway, for some other uh, uh, regions and countries around the world. There is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of flight plans, tracking of drones, experience of their conformance with it and their ability to operate from everything from recreational to heavy drones. I think the insurance industry might want to start taking a look at some of this. And then once we start to pin some of the underlying technologies in place, I think there was a comment earlier about the CAA rely on uh, DAA, on uh, detect and avoid on the aircraft. That's typically the last point of avoidance, but okay, you detect something. What does that vehicle do about it? Does it turn right per the rules of the road, or does it stop until something comes and hits it? You know that's not going to give you the, the end answer. So one of the advantages of the Skyway program is that will give some foundational detect and avoid capability and the ability to guide uh, drones to avoid flying into each other, to avoid flying into manned aviation, and to avoid flying into other things that might be around. So I think the, the insurance regime albeit fairly seen as experimental today, is starting to normalize, and you are starting to see some 
certainly the commercial uh, insurers around the world, um, you know, some in the UK and, and beyond, starting to get much more repet uh, repetitive, repeatable in terms of the sort of frameworks and so on that they're, they're, they'll enable. But it all still comes back to having a common operating mechanism, a safety case that they can be confident that you know what you're doing and you're flying in an environment uh, with the right sort of connections that will allow you to do that safely. Just one more thing I'd like to add, might sound like a pithy comment. There's a difference between insurance and liability and the regulators will determine, uh, decide which is which. Um, I mean, we're working with Skyports um, on a medical network project up in Scotland. And in this case, it involves pretty much the entire NHS, uh, all of the NHS trusts. Um, and when we look at who owns the risk as opposed to who has to get the insurance to cover that, um, you slowly start breaking it down towards um, the key participants in the chain, right? And so the question of liability is just as important as the question about what is insurance, is it affordable, and can we make a network such as uh, the one that they want to do in Scotland to make it work? Because it's not just going to be out in the rural parts, it's going to be across Scotland. I think my view is looking at it not what we're doing today where we're trying to um, create fixed point-to-point -point commercial activities. I'm looking at it from the point of view of an Amazon drone landing in your back garden to deliver you a parcel two hours after you ordered it, or it being landing on top of a Collect Plus, uh, Collect Plus locker to deliver it to a fixed point when you haven't got a back garden. I think that liability is where I think the insurance industry will start uh, the work that's being done today will be the foundation to allow some, the liability to be understood and contained and to allow in activities like that in the future. And it's not that far away. As I said, Amazon are already trying this out in the US to deliver something within the next three to five years to your back garden. So it, the work that Skyways is doing and all these operators are doing will give the information to understand the liability, to mitigate the risk, whether it's using a technology like my, my own for mitigation of um, landing risk, or whether it's using other technologies, whether it's on the drone or whether it's in the infrastructure to ensure that the risk is contained. That way it can be insured. That way you're able to scale beyond fixed nodes to landing in your back garden at some point in the future. Brilliant. Thanks, Clem. Um, we've got a few minutes left. Uh, if possible, can we open up to questions from the audience? Um, so, Paul Forever from Catapult. Uh, it feels to me that the actual the drone community and the autonomous airspace community, say, are, are acting as pioneers, perhaps, with regard to advancing technology beyond that which is being used by commercial airspace and general aviation. Do you see that there's actually... Uh, translational value, do you think expect to see some of these technologies assisting in perhaps um, the transition to electric aviation and commercial aviation? Uh, and, and you know, what, what sort of timeline would we see that happening over? So the UK government has been supporting this for a number of years now. There's been, um, we're now on to the third phase of what's known as the Future of Flight Challenge. Um, I think everybody here is part of the Future of Flight Challenge where, and over the next two years, there is going to be um, either demonstrable deployments of delivery or, uh, or demonstrations of new technology. 
that can be then built into these future deployments to enable this to happen. So by the time we get to two years' time, which is the end of the future of flight phase three, many of these companies here will have, have demonstrated a commercial exploitation. So I think it's coming. It's very close. Yeah, thanks for the question, Paul. There's uh, quite a lot of things happening uh, here, as you see, not just in the UK, but uh, uh, across the world. The majority of these vehicles are electric. Uh, we're seeing a big move towards, uh, I won't call it zero carbon at the moment, but uh, certainly towards uh, reduced environmental impact from these things. And then when I come back to some of the use cases we talked about earlier on, the impact is not just the vehicles, but it's actually the value that it's bringing for, uh, you know, for society and so on. So when, when you talk about timescales, um, you know, we're able to operate BB loss under beyond visual line of sight under certain conditions today, but they're very constrained conditions. The real key now to unlock all of that value is to open that up to unsegregated airspace. So, and then things can operate at scale much more repeatably and much more commercial viability. At that point, which is probably less than two years away to, to do that uh, uh, now, okay? It's technically feasible. It's a regulatory uh, challenge, both here and in other countries. It's not just uh, unique to here, but we're seeing a lot more uh, experimental activity happening in different places around the world that are trying to open up that, that capability. So, you know, repeatable commercial beyond visual line of sight operations, one to two years, uh, predominantly using electric vehicles. Uh, starting to carry passengers gets a little bit more challenging. And you know, if you look at the amount of money invested in the advanced air mobility or the uh, urban air mobility air taxis and regional uh, uh, movement companies, it's billions and billions of dollars. So those guys are on various timelines, but typically from 2025 and uh, to, through to 2030 for expected in service. So I think you'll see the scale up of that happen quite dramatically in the second half of this decade. Um, so, so your question, Paul, it was all about you know integrating what we've done into traditional aviation, and you know we can talk about EVTOLs and 2026, and you know it sounds sounds really great. Um, but we're here and now, and I, and I think the question is, what are we doing today? What, what has already been done that is already making a difference? And like, there are some yeah, examples that they're not necessarily public projects, but we have done a lot of work with airlines, for example. Um, any airline that flies uh, small um, manned operations, you know, like your, your Cessna caravans, if you're um, aviation fans, you know, these kind of operations are done in unsegregated airspace with normally one pilot, you know, flying either some people and some cargo quite, you know, maybe late at night. And some of the technology, some of the detect and avoid uh, kind of either whether it be tactical or strategic, so either whether it be kind of planned in advance or whether it be reacting in the moment, uh, they're coming to us and saying, what, what sort of systems can we deploy on our aircraft today, even if they're not certified, just so that our pilots can feel a bit safer in the air? Uh, and I think that is really interesting, that we're actually making a difference now, even with the limited technology that we have that's non-certified. Um, so I, I think that that's really interesting. And then the other is kind of communications. The stuff that, that uh, Kieran's doing, I'm sure you can talk about it, Kieran, but um, the communication stack that's being developed for UAVs, that will provide another level of redundancy for, for manned aviation. And 
uh, potentially will make a huge difference. We had a manned operator come to see us and say, oh, we really like what you're doing with remote operations. You know, we'd love to be able to monitor our flights, but also to maybe potentially help to pilot some of our flights using some of these remote technologies. And I, I think we can already make a difference and, and even, even before you know, commercial operations or fully scalable commercial operations in the UK. Um, you know, we can start now with, with current operators. Perfect. Thank you, Michael. Um, that's unfortunately all we've got time for. Um, but uh, yeah, please uh, come and ask any questions afterwards and we'll be more than happy to ask them. To hear future episodes of In Orbit, please do subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And to find out more about how space is empowering many different sectors, visit the Catapult website or join us on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook.